Hello, welcome to Full Circle with Garland. I'm a leader in the DEI space and have spent 20 years of my career in human resources. I've been having meaningful conversations about career development with my friends and colleagues, many of whom are rarely heard on stages and podcasts. I am excited to bring you their stories each week. I will be sharing how their diverse backgrounds have shaped their work, the lessons in their career highs and lows, and the importance of recognizing the full circle moments in life. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you enjoy this week's interview. So, welcome to Full Circle with Garland. Today's special guest is the one and only Cedric Bobo. We met through, I feel like serendipitous. It was like I met you just reaching out because I heard about Project Destin over the summer and was super just excited about this idea of um, bringing real estate to life in the way that you do it with Project Destin. Um, And then I've become involved with ULI, specifically the urban plan um, piece of ULI. And then lo and behold, you were on a call that I was on. Um, (laughs) And then lo and behold, we find that we have some people in common and some organizations in common. And so Mm. I felt like the stars aligned for you and I to speak today. (laughs) And so I'm excited to have you on um, because I believe what you're doing with Project Destined is amazing, but also just your background and what um, has shaped you and what has led you to do this has been, uh, I think, a necessary story to hear. So happy to have you on today. No, and thank you. And there are no accidents. This is a happy accident, and I'm thrilled to have a chance to to chat with you and tell our story, but also tell the industry story of how we're going to enhance diversity in the industry. So I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, so I usually start out my podcast about finding a little bit more, finding out a little bit more about you. So I understand, you know, when we initially prepared for this, it was ownership and how um, ownership has been a key part of your, it's the upbringing, it shapes how you see things. Can we talk about how ownership has shaped you? Yeah, I mean, for me, it starts from birth in the sense of I'm from a small town in northern Mississippi. I think it's less than 10,000 folks if you round up. Uh, and But I grew up in the shadows of a great-grandfather who bought 100 acres of land in 1890. And, you know, I grew up in the shadows of that. I mean, he doing a very difficult time period uh, in our country's history. He was a landowner uh, and built several businesses. And I grew up hearing stories about him from literally birth. And I frankly wanted to be like him. Uh, And so that was being an owner. I didn't know how to express that, right, in terms of how to achieve it for myself beyond, you know, buying a piece of land in Mississippi. Uh, But that's what shaped me. So from the the very beginning, um, I was really proud uh, of that history. And it was a history that wasn't full of pity. It was full of, you know, hey, this is my community and I want to own a piece of it. And I, I think everyone in my family sees themselves as owners, not victims, and I grew up with that mindset. So really, really important foundation for me. Okay. So when you look back on, um, you know, having this history, um, what are the like mantras or the things that you have come to kind of in the back of your mind, you think about, you live by, it's what drives you? I mean, for me, it's never be afraid to be afraid, right? I mean, like, uh, 
You know, I, uh, I'm always nervous. I mean, I'm full, like the rest of us, I'm full of insecurity, certainly in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, but I've never been immobilized by my fear or my insecurity. Uh, if anything, it's sort of mobilized me to, to go and try and be great. Uh, and so I live by that mantra of like, I will not let fear stop me. I will not let other folks' expectations of me shape me. Uh, I have this um, kind of crazy self-reliance that I think comes from you know, being in a family where, I mean, it was, it was us against a storm or us against, you know, some natural event that could put our farm at risk. And so I grew up, you know, very much focused on, um, on the people around me who loved me. And I was never, I've never been really driven by people who don't like me. I just, I mean, it just doesn't, it doesn't really enter my world very often unless it's the goal is to try and let them know I'm still going to be successful. Yeah. So leaving Mississippi, and mm-hmm. getting out into the, as they call it, the big city, um, yeah. you know, what was that transition like? Because I know I've heard lots of interesting stories from folks when they, you know, mm. decide to leave home. Mm. I mean, for me, it happened in stages. And I, and I think I was lucky that way. I mean, I grew up pretty sheltered in, you know, northern Mississippi, Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, and then step one was I went to school in Knoxville, Tennessee, not a big city at all, but I was away from my home and a very different environment. Knoxville, Tennessee, East Tennessee is very different from the Western part of our great state. Yeah, but I got there, uh, I found a community that really supported me. Uh, and then by the, my third year, fourth year, I spent a year abroad at Oxford. Uh, again, I went abroad. I went to a, you know, very close to a big city, London, but I was in another small college town in Oxford, but I was a long way from home. And so I thought that was a really helpful transition. You know, I played sports there, rugby in particular, and I got introduced to people who, again, in a small kind of community, I got introduced to lots of new things, which I think helped me adjust. Uh, but the biggest transition is that I, I came away from that that time abroad, and I got introduced to investment banking, and I then came to New York. Now, that was a huge, huge transition. Uh, but I had been to Knoxville. I had been to the UK. And when I got to New York, I guess I wasn't, I was cautious because it was a very different environment, but I wasn't afraid. Um and I was working so often that I could have been anywhere in the world. Like I never saw outside. Uh, but I think what changed me was that when I got to New York, I began to see the world of opportunity that was there. I grew up super sheltered. When I got there and I worked for, you know, an investment bank that covered private equity firms, I had never, in my mind, it had never crossed my mind, actually, that there were people in the world who bought things largely with other folks' money and earned a piece of the profit. And so that was the first real turning point was like, wow. I've been sheltered. There's this whole world that if I can work hard, be disciplined, there's all this stuff that I could be doing that was never aware to me. Yeah, no, I think that's a lot of people from communities of color just looking at how things work behind the scenes because it's Mm. not dinner time conversation. People Mm. that you know one-on-one may not necessarily um, have these types of experiences to share. And so oftentimes it is when we enter professional settings um, that we realize, wow, there's a whole, there's a whole other world that's happening, and there are game changers and moves that are being made, and mm. well in advance of when you actually, vi- you know, physically see it manifest. Particularly with commercial real estate, um, because it's a tangible asset, you just see things trading hands, or something gets yeah. redeveloped, and you have no idea. Okay, what what's behind all of this? Who's behind all of this? Yeah. Um, so when you had the opportunity to work in that way, what were the things that stood out for you that you were like, 
I've got to like, I've got to share this. Yeah. I mean, at first it's just the idea of being an owner. I mean, I didn't know that there were private equity firms that they raised money to go and buy stuff. I just thought you had a good idea. You try and raise some money, you go buy it. I didn't know that for some folks, the money came first and then they went out and executed it. That was, that blew my mind. I remember calling my mom and I was like, mom, there's a whole world of folks that just buy stuff for a living and they're doing it all around the world. And so that, that just really blew my mind. And I expressed that to anyone, you know, who would listen. That was the first thing. I think the thing that, um, other thing that I was blown away by, uh, was it for the first time having role models and mentors really meant something to me. And I would say both formal and informal. And I think the informal was more important than the formal in that I began to come on almost every day with someone I met where I got a nugget of information. So I didn't concentrate my mentoring in any one person. Uh, but what I did, because I, much like in sports, you try and pick up something from everybody. Uh, so on Wall Street, what I began to do a lot of is that I would do what I call walk-bys. Where I would walk by someone and I would say, I would just start a conversation. Then I would go on a coffee break or if they were smokers, I would go and tolerate their smoking and try and learn something. I began to figure out if I were to do a financial model that's doing a leverage buyout analysis, wouldn't it be great to talk to someone who's a couple of years ahead of me and pick their brain over coffee? That to me was a huge piece because I found that one-on-one, me being different mattered less versus when I was one-on-twenty. And if I could go and get someone to spend 30 minutes teaching me something, what I found is that they were now bought into my success. Uh, and as I began sort of matriculating through the company, I found that I would have these supporters, you know, who frankly got to know me over a coffee break or over their smoke break. And that I think is essential for any young person who looks a little bit different uh, to, to find in their, in their workplace. So networking with a variety of people not necessarily mm-hmm. one mentor or one, you know, person, but more so getting a sense of everyone and what they do and how that influences the whole picture. 100%. And so when you spend a summer on Wall Street, they have this, this whole this idea of you sinking or you swimming, right? And so what I found is that, well, this is like an election, right? Where you've got to go in and you've got to get people who are going to be in a room to say, like, I spent time with that Cedric and he's all right. So what I decided to do was just go and try and meet everybody and make an impression on them, right? We're in election season, so you can appreciate that. So what I found is being intentional about how you get to know people is really important. And my mom had taught me a bunch of it because she works in a corporate environment. And so what I did, and I still do it, is that I try and build a broad network in whatever I'm doing. I mean, look at Project Destin today. You know, we don't have one big sponsor. You know, we have 20 of them. And what I want is the industry talking about the way that we create customized experiences for every single partner, right? So whether it's Rick Clark or Brookfield or Jean-Marie Tretant at Westfield, I want them saying, you know what, I talk to Cedric all the time and he's doing this for us. And so if you can kind of build that campaign, that momentum, the industry begins to say, hey, this is a place where, you know, we can go and partner and find talent. That's what I've tried to build throughout my career. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. I talk to students every summer when they come for our internship program. And I said, you should be having at least three or four people that you're having coffee mm. or you're just meeting with because this is, you're in the, you're in here to meet people. You're in here to do the yeah. work, but you're really in here to meet people because that is the huge part of this industry is creating a network for yourself and mm. them knowing you, um, something about you, not just, oh, this was an intern that we had this summer. Yeah. But if someone had to say, you know, like you said, 
you're getting in a room and saying, oh, you know, who stands out? If they remember you and your name and had a meaningful connection, mm. they're definitely going to mention you. So yeah. And the other solid, thing, Garland, solid I'll tell advice. You, and Garland, the other thing I'll tell you is that, and I still do it today. I wake up typically at 4.30 in the morning, um, is that um, I used to get to work really, really early. So I could have lots of informal conversations because when you get to work at like 7.30 in the morning or 7 in the morning or 6.30, the folks who are in, you know, it's it's weird. It's almost as though hierarchy doesn't matter pre 7 a.m. Okay, you're an early riser. Let's go talk about something. So what I found is a lot of the senior folks would get there really, really early, many of them because they wanted to get home early to be with their families. I used to get in really, really early so I could have those informal conversations. And now, ironically, you know, I schedule Zoom calls at 5.30 in the morning. I send out texts and emails at 5 o'clock in the morning because the response is quicker. And I want people to know I'm up, I'm ready, and I'm ready to go. Uh, and I've just found that, like, the ability to network early in the morning, engage with people, it sets an impression of what you're all about. Same with sports, by the way. Yeah, we're going to uh, jump into your sports a little bit because I think all that right. uh, there's so much... I mean, I'm, I wasn't a college level athlete, but I learned a mm. lot running track for three years mm. and cross country. Um, yeah. I think there's something about athletics, whether it's, um, you know, pushing yourself past your limit, um, cheering on your team, um, mm. making, making something a priority and just sticking with it, no matter how hard it is. Um, yes. and, and dedication, like, work ethic. I mean, there's just so many things. So given, you know, you have a background where athletics was a part of, you know, shaping you, what were the things that you learned from athletics? Well, I think a lot of folks will tell you that it's, um, you know, you just got to work really hard. And you and I both know that's, that's an important element of it. It's the price of entry, but it's not the most important element. The most important element is working with intention and with the process. So what I learned from sports is that I went to the UK and I played rugby for the first time. I didn't grow up playing rugby, but I would study the what I would study what the best players did and I would replicate it. And so much of it was around a process. And when you tie process with long hours, you begin getting these amazing results and it feeds on itself. So that's what I got out of it, which is that like I can be, you know, not well exposed to something like rugby. You know, but I became a really good rugby player just because I think I outworked people with a process. Because I think just outworking people with no process means you could just be super inefficient. So that's what I learned. And I used to study this guy, Jerry Rice, who was from Mississippi, who was obviously an incredible wide receiver. And what I used to love about him was that he would go back to Mississippi every summer. He would run those same dirt roads because he found that when you find inspiration, right, through adversity, Right. And then you mix that with process and hard work. Now you got something even more dangerous, which is like you believe in your mission from the core. And there's like this tailwind behind you. So what I started to try and do was now mix hard work, you know, with process. But now I was just fueled by something I was super passionate about. And ownership was my thing. It was like, well, I just got to be an owner and I got to outwork people and get into that goal. Uh, And that's what sports taught me was just to mix all of those things together. Okay. So let's transition into real estate investing Mm. and ownership, Mm. because I know that was with that being your goal, transitioning Mm. then into doing it for yourself. And then now taking that to the next level by 
you know, teaching others. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I spent 20 years do, buying companies, um, but my wife's father was a surgeon who I thought he enjoyed buying real estate more than doing surgery. And so I got kind of drawn to it in 05 and just began buying real estate, my wife and I, in, in different parts of the country, starting in London. Um, and I just, I frankly just love the idea, and as you laugh at this, is that I love the idea of going into a neighborhood, um, buying a piece of real estate, and the fact that you were getting cash flow every month in exchange for providing for providing shelter. I've just never, much like the way I first heard about buyouts, I've never been able to escape the power of that feeling uh, in providing shelter. Uh, and I just began to love the first of the month. I was like, mom, it's the first of the month. Like someone's paying me rent, helping me pay off my mortgage, and I still own it. And I still, like that still blows my mind. And so I kind of got addicted to that feeling. And I, I love buying companies but I really love and have a passion for buying real estate. So again, it's the passion plus the hard work. And then in 2015, I left Carlisle uh, and I began more formally doing it for myself, but I needed the passion to go along with it. I just couldn't do it with the idea of just making money. That wasn't enough for me anymore. And so I was with Deborah Lee at, and my wife at the BET Awards 2016, and I, and I saw this movie about Detroit and about how much development was happening there, but it didn't have a very diverse lens to it, despite being a black city. And that's where I found the passion piece, which is that like I went to Detroit to buy real estate, but also to train students. And here's what I found, Garland. I found that anyone can go into Detroit and buy real estate. That doesn't give you an advantage at all. When you go into Detroit and you're buying real estate, but you're training the next generation to follow in your footsteps, everyone wants to support you. So like the same way you and I talk about we're seeing each other more often, I find that people were being placed in my life, accelerating what we were doing because we had this purpose to our work. And again, that purpose plus the hard work, I found really powerful. So it started in Detroit and then it just began to scale really quickly because when, the, when someone said, come to our city and bring Project Destiny, what they got was me trying to find ways to invest, but also training folks in the community to do it. And so I've just found that formula to be one that's really powerful. And if I'm honest, distinctly different from buying companies. If I go and buy a company in Michigan, it doesn't mean that like I'm doing a ton of good for the community because I'm just collecting dollars from selling widgets. But when you go and you buy real estate, you are firmly part of that community and they want people who are doing our kind of work there. So I've seen this sort of exponential growth in our work because I think people like having us around and doing this work. Yeah, no, it's so true. Uh, I love, I think, the idea of teaching someone how to fish so that they can eat for themselves versus just giving them a fish, right? Um, and I think that's a big part of what you're doing is demystifying a lot of it because I think a lot of it is just unawareness. Nobody was, is aware. And once you realize how it works, you're like, oh, wow, this is, one, it's really cool. Two, it's yeah. not as hard as I thought. And three, I can freaking do this. Like, I can totally 100%. do this. Um, and Please finish. My apologies. No. Yeah. And I, I, I'm, ex that's, I think what's excites me the most about what mm. you're doing. And the demystification is multiple levels, right? When we first did our program in Detroit, you know, we would have 15 and 16 year old students. Then we would have parents sit in because they see development happening in Detroit and they don't know how to participate. Right. And so I saw the demystification for students, right. For parents. And then to me, the best part was that, we would have folks who were in the real estate industry uh, and they were service providers, right? 
but they wanted to become owners. And so what I began to see is that what I was teaching more than real estate is I was teaching the mentality of owning real estate. Because I think in some ways, and it's because of some of our country's history, we don't necessarily believe sometimes that we're meant to become owners, right? Uh, and so I think in some ways, when I came into the community and I said, hey, I'm not from Detroit, but I'm going to own in Detroit, I think that mentality was in some ways infectious. And then we backed it up with teaching them the process to do it. So I didn't just fill you with hope and walk away. I was filling you with this idea of becoming an owner. I was doing it with 15 and 16-year-olds, but I was using language that resonated with adults. And so I think what people saw was like, hey, you're demystifying ownership at scale, starting with young people, but really it's also meant for their parents and practitioners who may not see their own place yet in becoming an owner. And if I'm honest, that's, I think, our contribution to real estate is that we're teaching people how to think like owners no matter where they start in real estate. That's what I'm, our contribution is, what I hope it will, will continue to be. Okay. Um, we hear a lot about equity and access to capital. Um, mm. What do you believe are kind of ways we can solve this or just what you have mm. you know, been trying to teach in how to solve this? Yeah, so we're teaching. So we have our first accredited course um, you know, at Lehman College CUNY in New York. And we're doing it in partnership with um, the amazing Patrice Darrington, who leads the Columbia's, leads Columbia's MS Red program. And uh, we're teaching this course. It's largely students from the Bronx. Uh, and we're teaching them using live deals. And, you know, one of the students said, well, this course is great, but when I leave, I don't have access to capital. And what I said to them is that whenever someone says to me they don't have access to capital, what I say to them is that you don't have access to people who have capital because that's the key to raising money is that the first person who gives you money to go into a deal is likely going to be someone who you know uh, from a prior life because they're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. And most people start with that, right? Whether you're, you know, Rick Clark at Brookfield or whether you're other players, they probably started with someone giving them a shot on goal, right? And maybe they hadn't earned it yet, but they had a reputation that they were building, so I always tell students, like, you got to use this period in my course to build your own network with people who have access to capital. And so one of the things that we do when you're going through our competitions is that we also run social media competitions where you're amplifying and telling your story through social media. And I'm really encouraging you to connect with the network because the best thing to do with our course is to use it to meet the Rick Carks, the John Marie's, the Chad Treadways, meet all these folks. And then the world has a lot of capital, not enough good ideas. So when you have that good idea, you've now got friends like Rick and Chad and Jean-Marie who will give you a listen because you've come through a program they supported. And now I've given you, to me, the most important thing beyond the mentality is access to people who have a reputation for raising capital. And now that can become your network. So to me, the, the equity and inclusion piece to our work is helping you build a language and the network. So when you have that great idea, you can actually execute it with friends of Project Destin. Oh, that's that's money right there. That's everything. I love it. It actually is money. <laughs> <laughs> I hope. <laughs> yes. So I'm a big reader and I always ask mm. people what they um, are reading or a book mm. that they have read that was, in you know, inspirational or game changing what is that for you? Yeah. I mean, the book that changed everything for me was when I was a senior in um, 
I was a senior in college. I had just done a summer on Wall Street. And someone turned me on to this book by Reginald Lewis, Watch It, Why Guys Have All the Fun. And I remember, I mean, I was so proud um, because, I, I, one, he was an owner, right? I mean, he, he had bought Beatrice LTD. But I was also just driven by this, how, how he outworked people and how he was, I've always thought that, um, you know, I just, I'm not going to allow you to stop me. And what I thought about Reginald Lewis that was so inspiring is that like he was just relentless, that it was just better to join him than just to get out, just to get in his way. And so that book really changed things for me because I was like, wow, this guy, he was a Harvard law student, lawyer, but now he's buying companies. So nothing about his pedigree suggests that he was going to be a buyout guy, right? But he was just so driven to do it that he did it. And I've also always thought like, I've got to be that person at everything I do to where it's just easier to help me because I'm not going to stop calling. I'm not going to stop competing. I'm just, you might as well just try and help me out just so I can, you know, just so I can move on to somebody else. Right. And so that book really shaped things for me because he was just relentless and I want to be known for being just as relentless. Great, great book. Like great answer. Mm. Like mm. that book that's like a treasure. I don't think a lot of people mm. know about that book. I remember I learned about that book a few years ago and I was like, what? This should be one of mm. the, you know, top Required 10 me. in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um, a, it's, so, it's incredible. Yeah. So let's talk about Project Destin um, mm. and, you know, what you've done, um, some of the partnerships that have come out of what you've done. This is your time to shine. Yeah, I mean, from, from my partners to shine, I mean, I mean, the first, I mean, obviously the first big break we get is that, I mean, hey, Deborah Lee, I visit her uh, and she shows this incredible movie that's so impactful. I mean, like BET has been a platform for so many folks. Uh, you know, she's probably surprised it was a platform for building a real estate, you know, endeavor. Uh, but that was the first big break that we got. Uh, the second big break uh, was probably A-Rod and J-Lo. I mean, like I tell people all the time that, when I met A-Rod backstage, he was like, you know, let's do this together in Miami. But he and Jennifer did something even more important. When we launched it, then when they saw we were serious, you know, A-Rod said to me, he said, this is a good idea. We've got to make sure everyone knows about it. So A-Rod was super intentional about amplifying our story. And if you look back at his Instagram, I mean, he would do so many posts telling our story where he was engaging students. And he just went out of the way. And then our first big partnerships, John Gray and Judy and Jamie Diamond. That was all A-Rod driven. And I'll tell you the best thing you ever did, and it's kind of funny, we launched, we launched with a we launched with the Yankees and Judy and Jamie Diamond and John Gray. We went from the idea to launch in less than 60 days. Right. Wow. In the in New York, a market we'd never launched in before. Uh, and but the best thing he did is that it went incredible, right? He and Jennifer skipped the Oscars to come to our championship competition, right? But then afterwards, A-Rod called me. And I thought he was calling me just to say, like, job well done. That's not his style. He's like, what's next? And he said to me, he's like, Cedric, you should be building or we should be building a global school where folks can come and learn real estate with us. And he was like, we should be figuring out the infrastructure to do that. Now, at the time, all of our work was in person. So I couldn't really figure out how we would do that. It was only when we launched in LA and London in 2019, the summer. And, and we started doing Zoom-based competitions because we just couldn't be in LA and London at the same time. I began to see a different path. And then when COVID hits, you know, Zoom learning becomes acceptable. And so now we've done eight cities 
seven, including plus London. And but we've tripled in size this year. And so I had A-Rod on for a pep talk for our students a week ago. And I was like, Alex, it's crazy now that vision you shaped is coming to fruition because I would be shocked if we weren't in 20 markets this time next year, including international markets because of, frankly, technology and acceleration that's come out of COVID. But he planted that seed. I give him full credit for so much of what we're doing now for plant, for really just pushing me to think bigger. Yeah, no, I I think the blessing of COVID is that time and space are no longer limitations um, mm. in the, to the degree that, you know, you have to commute somewhere, you have to fly somewhere, you know, you have to yeah. sit in something for a certain amount of time. Yes, from a work perspective, sometimes that can be, you know, a little bit crazy because you feel like you don't have a, a division between when something starts and stops. But I think from a perspective of, you know, having something like this available to the masses mm. in a more um, meaningful way, it there's no reason why someone can't get on a Zoom and learn something and be connected to a network and be able to, you know, change their lives in this way. So that that is, I think, a good a good part of all of this is having access yeah. to, um, you know, doing more more outreach and getting to more people. Um, do you have any, you know, plans in terms of, you know, other visions or things that you're wanting to share or interested in sharing today? Yeah, I mean, the, the big the big focus for us right now uh, is really building a talent funnel that starts in middle school. Uh, so I'll use Durham as an example where we're partnering with UNC, Chapel Hill, Greystone, Walker, and Dunlap. Uh, and we've got a partnership where we're doing everything from training 7th and 8th graders every Friday, uh, a high school program with Hillside High, we're very proud of. And we've got a program with Historically Black College, uh, North Carolina Central University. And there is the first city for us that we've started with middle school, but those students can flow through all the way to college and then hopefully land at Graystar or Walker and Dunlap. To me, that's the big focus for me. In every city going forward, you know, we may start with a college, but in the background, we're building high school and middle school programs, just like the NBA. You know, we've got to start with a talent funnel, not as a junior when you're at Vanderbilt, uh, but when you're a seventh and eighth grader and you're wondering, like, how are all these folks building around me and I don't know how to do it? So that's the big priority for us now is building that middle school to college platform where you can do Project Destin all the way through. I think that is a great idea. Um, as someone who works in talent, um, I do feel like college is sometimes a little bit too late. Um, mm. High school kind of just, it starts to wash over folks of, oh, this is a career path. Um, yeah. And then I think middle school is implementing that mindset of ownership. And at yeah. that point, once you kind of plant that seed, um, it's just a matter of, Again, direction, intentionality, purpose. Yeah, um, I totally get that. I, I definitely, and I have a middle schooler, and right now, I, I she's still multiple, yeah. right? They're still multiple. <laughs> yeah. They still kind of listen to you a little bit. Um, yes. So yeah, no, I totally get that. Uh, I'm just, I'm so happy that you, you know, made the time today because I know um, we're recording this on election day, folks. Um, <laughs> this is a lot happening, um, but I. I'm so happy that you um, are bringing this to life in all of the places that it is willing to be grown. 
Um, and I'm excited about the future. And if there's anything that I can mm. do, please let me know because um, I can I can see your vision and it's mm. it's bright. It's very bright. Mm. Well, thank you. Well, you're doing a lot. I mean, we depend on the storytellers uh, and you're an incredible storyteller. And for us to be able to to grow this work around the country, uh, we depend on storytellers to amplify our story. So uh, we're really grateful, uh, you know, for your time, your energy, uh, and your passion for this work. So uh, here's to just the beginning. As A-Rod said, we're only in the second inning of this thing, uh, if that. And so uh, hopeful that we can continue to partner with you and, uh, and do great things. Perfect. So I usually wrap up my podcast with two things. Um, one is a fill in the blank. Inclusion mm-hmm. in my industry looks like. Everybody, right? I mean, like, it's just an equal shot for everybody. Um, You know, and that starts with awareness. Um, What does life look like coming full circle to you? God, I mean, hey, it's, um, it's, you know, it's like so many have done for me is slaying the ground for my children's generation to not know this was ever a problem. (laughs) So, uh, so that's my, that's full circle for me, uh, is that let's just erase this thing. Oh, that's good. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate mm-hmm. it. And um, I'm excited. I'm excited for all that's coming. And I appreciate having you on today. So thank you so much, Cedric. My pleasure. Thank you. What a great interview by Cedric Bobo. This was one of the interviews where I had so many ahas, as well as things that I felt were so true because I've either seen them myself or have had an opportunity to uh, impart this same advice um, for others. And so I'd say the things that stuck out for me the most with this particular interview was this idea of never being afraid of being afraid, because I think we often get into situations where we're called to have to stretch ourselves and grow, and it can be scary. And you can think, man, I don't know if I can do this. But I loved what he said about just realizing that you are going to have situations where you aren't sure. And so don't see that as a place to retreat, but as a place to kind of grow and and try something. And so being afraid is honestly a state of growth. It sounds scary, but once you do it, you end up realizing you've grown from it, whether a lesson learned, a skill acquired something that you didn't know that you had within yourself that has shown up. So lean into the fear instead of freaking out and, and retreating. It's really about um, growth and how you, how you show up within that growth. Another thing that stood out that he said to was learning from others so that mentorship feels informal. I myself find that I don't necessarily have one mentor or or a board of directors. I think that's a great idea. And I think if you happen to have that, that's fantastic. But if you have a variety of people that you learn from and that you can go to with questions and answers and you develop a relationship with, but there's not a formal, you know, these are my people that I go to for this, but they're people who you know you can count on. Sometimes that means more than sometimes a one or two person formal relationship, because the thing with mentorship, it has to feel organic and natural. Anytime it starts to feel contrived or, or forced or very transactional, it, it 
starts to, I think, erode some of the the efficacy of it, of, of the reason you have this relationship. So learning from others up close, I think, is really a great opportunity to also see the bigger picture of what you're doing. What I loved about what he said was he gets to work early so he can, you know, have that informal time. He gets there so that they can get to know who he is. And I think when you are a person of color, oftentimes the only person in the room, oftentimes the person who is the youngest, or sometimes even um, in the case of being a woman, you're the only woman, it's easier to approach getting to know people one-on-one than feeling like you've got to you know, get the whole room uh, because there's so much, I'd say, value in a one-on-one experience. It feels less daunting. Uh, And it allows you to go deeper with folks because you're not having to convince or feel like you've got to capture the whole room, Um, especially if your personality is one where, you know, just talking to a big group of people, whether it's four people or 10, feels overwhelming. I think this is a wonderful strategy to still get to know people without it feeling overwhelming. And then the third thing that struck me is when he said, you know, Having a strong work ethic, plus adding a process, plus adding purpose. This is secret sauce, folks. If you can find work that allows you to, of course, take your strengths, create a process around it, and then have purpose to your work, it won't feel like work. You'll be fueled by something bigger something um, deeper with inside of you. And as a result, you will show up, I'd say, much stronger. You'll also feel as though you're, you're willing to go further for it. It's not feeling so arduous and toiling. Um, I think with work, sometimes, you know, it feels very hard when you can't see the connection to you. You can't see the connection to something that means something to you. And so what I loved about him saying that with athletics, he found that, you know, having a work ethic is great, but he found a process. He studied from the greats. He looked at, you know, who is working a particular process. And so it makes it, of course, more efficient. But at the same time, when you have even more of a purpose and a calling, something you're going back to, a reason why you're doing it, it makes the work more meaningful and purposeful. And so these were the three nuggets that I got from Cedric's interview. Uh, Never be afraid of being afraid. Mentorship being an informal relationship and you can learn from a variety of people. And then having a work ethic around a process plus adding purpose. Hope you are able to add some of these nuggets to your work this week or in the future because there was so much shared here and I'm very excited about starting this journey of adding reflections because I get so excited when I listen to all of these folks, but I want to ensure that we're kind of highlighting the, the key things that make these interviews so impactful. So thank you so much. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe, share, and tell a friend. You can find me on Instagram at Full Circle with Garland. And if you'd like to be a guest, go to garlandfuller.com. Thank you for listening and sharing your time with me. I hope this next week helps you to recognize the full circles in your own life. Bye-bye.